Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism. I want to continue part two of the Mormonism's problems with the DNA and the concept of evolution, with the science versus religion debate. Uh, Mormonism seems to embrace science better than some areas of Christianity, but there are still serious problematic errors with it that I would like to address and share with you. Now, uh, since part one, I've been thinking about this uh, extensively this week, and I see two problematic areas with the whole theme of trying to uh, talk about evolution in the realms of Mormonism. And number one, it falls on the leaders. The, uh, the concept of revelation. To me, it just does not appear that revelation has been occurring on this issue at all. Uh, the leaders have been somewhat uh, hesitant to the tune of 100% <laughs> without question on even making any kind of a discussion or a pronouncement upon uh, what happens, what's the relationship, etc. Now they will they will indicate that they have received past revelation about the the relationship of man to God and the relationship of God to the cosmos and the world as creator, etc. But they don't seem to, these are all basically more or less vague generalities, which give us a, what I would call a spiritual uplift, um, a, a spiritual binky to put in our mouth on a blanket to hold while science marches on with the evidence, which steadily appears to me to be accumulating to really at least force the church to change its interpretations, to to change the way that they deal with the scriptures. That is what I am seeing happen, happening. And the leaders just will not put this into context. And the other uh, prong on this, the first prong I would say falls on the the leadership, but the second prong is the Mormon scholarship. The uh, the scholars out of BYU and in some respects Utah State, although Utah State aren't as strongly under the thumbs of the brethren as BYU is, you know, it's either five or six, possibly seven of the actual 12 apostles, the Quorum of the 12 Apostles, who are the board of directors of BYU. And they will dictate the, uh, the limitations uh, the valley, the, the channel that the Mormon scholarship concerning evolution is going to be allowed to take. There are a set of core doctrines that Mormonism really puts down in concrete. And the scholarship, regardless of what the evidence shows, the scholarship is going to say no. Uh, you you can't go outside of those views, which is basically telling us that the scholarship, even though they suspect or in some cases might know that the evidence does threaten some of those core doctrines, some of those ideas, that there there is a channel they're supposed to go in, and yet it's broader and it keeps getting broader or higher or lower. They can't stay within the purview of the uh, brethren's desires to make sure that science does not refute the church. So, on the one hand, you have the leaders with the lack of revelation on this subject. On the other hand, you have the Mormon scholars who are very interesting to read, but you understand that they are more or less beginning with the answers. They know where they can and where they can't go. In this case, it might be tempting for some of them to interpret the scientific data in a way that's not congruent with the rest of the interpretation of the scientific data based upon the scientists' understandings themselves. That might become a problem. Another issue is 
in beginning with the answers, they're going to pick and choose which evidences they will talk about in evolution, which, if it does make the church look good, or at least does not threaten the church, then they will elaborate on that particular view. But if it does threaten the church, if it does show that, well, this particular interpretation of Scripture might actually be wrong, and yet it's one of the brethren's favorite Scriptures, then they're not going to reinterpret that Scripture based on the scientific aspect, which will show that one particular apostle over here or another one over there doesn't have a clue about the meaning of the scripture. They want just one meaning, theirs. And, and evolution and the discussion of the science versus the religion could very well be showing that the scripture can be interpreted on a number of different fronts. Now, this is very similar to the Jewish Kabbalistic understanding and interpretation of the scriptures, without question, uh, because they have four different ways that they interpret the scripture. The literal, the literal historical, I've said this in multiple videos of mine. When I discovered the Zohar, this was probably one of the most interesting parts uh, of the Kabbalah. I, I say Zohar, it's in the Zohar, it's in the, uh, it's in the Bahir, it's in the uh, Sefer Yetzirah, it's in, in many of the Jewish uh, rabbinical uh, commentaries on the scripture where the literal historical is certainly the least important. And so they don't go with that. Well, here's the, here's the problem. We know that the Mormon view has put the literal historical at the absolute top pinnacle. So there's a, a vast incongruence with the, well, not only with the Mormon and the Jewish spiritual view, which this video is not about, although that would make a good video. I will do that. But the idea of the, the scientific uh, materials with the DNA and how the, how the uh, genetic aspects of the lineages of the animals and the lineages of the bugs and the lineages of the human, etc., probably don't comport very well with the way the church leaders have been saying that, being inspired by the Holy Ghost, they have taught these comments on the scripture. Therefore, because they are inspired, this is how everyone else ought to view the scripture. Or else, now, there's nothing wrong with having a different interpretation. What irks me, what gets my claws coming out uh, and puts me in a fighting mode without question, is when the brethren will try to make me feel guilty when the church attempts to say, well, now, now the reason, the reason that you're interpreting this particular scripture, uh, that wind's blowing, isn't it? I apologize. Let me, let me get this over here again. The reason you're interpreting a different scripture differently is because the Holy Ghost is not guiding you. Or else, perhaps you have a sin that you've covered up, and perhaps you need to come into us and talk to our bishops and stake presidents and get rid of that sin. You know, you have a, a nine-month to a three-year repentance process you have to go through. And in the meantime, and then you will have the Spirit to guide you to tell you that our interpretation is true. That, I, I, I just, I cannot abide that. That, that is just silly. That is brainwashing. That's what I am. That is what I am opposed to. I'm not opposed to the brethren giving us interpretations of Scripture. I'm not opposed to the Mormon scholars saying, look, we can analyze this from this angle, or we can analyze it from this angle, or we can analyze it from this angle. But every angle that we analyze it from does not threaten Mormonism from the scientific viewpoint. I'm not against that. What I'm against is if I have a different interpretation of view, or if I utilize uh, a greater part of the scientific materials, even if it does end up threatening one of the core doctrines, then I'm opposed to someone coming down on me and saying, you can't believe that. You can't teach that. You can't say that. You're, you're misreading the science, etc., especially if they don't know diddly spit about the science, which, and this is so unfortunate, but I, I really don't think the leaders have any idea what the, <laughs> the science is. Now, in my previous video, 
I sincerely attempted to give Russell M. Nelson the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and I said, well, you know, this man was a world-class heart surgeon. There is no question in anyone's mind that he did study the science. You cannot become a doctor without knowing the science, without knowing the mathematics, without knowing the psychology, etc., right? Well, it turns out that he probably does know the science. The really wild, crazy thing is I had several comments in the comment sections of my first part of my video on part one where Russell Nelson has actually taught that a man has always been a man. When a woman gives birth to a person, it's always a human. A dog has always been a dog. And he used the singular most silly example of dogs because we have we have all of the evidence we need now this doesn't mean that it's exhaustive it can't be exhaustive because all of the evidence hasn't remained in existence like i was saying my camera cut out russell nelson couldn't have picked a worse example against evolution than by saying a dog has always been a dog a cat's always a cat etc when we can truly trace the scientific evidence of the step-by-step -step evolution of the dog from the wolf. So here is the theme that I want to discuss. This idea that the church leadership saying, well, you have to believe us because we are the inspired ones. When it comes to belief, you have to have a reason to believe. And that means evidence. For instance, when I pick up a handful of rocks and I drop these rocks, I believe they're going to fall down and not up as, along with this weed because I've had the evidence of that happening throughout the course of my life. If someone was to invoke the principle of faith or belief or saying that, well, you're, you're losing the spirit of the Holy Ghost, or Satan is tempting you now to have doubt. Doubt your doubt, brethren. All of that's just noise. None of that has any relevance to anything based with the evidence. We're justified in following the evidence. That's the current theme in which I operate under now as a post-apologetic Mormon. Because Evidence gives you the reason. Now, belief is a double-edged sword. So is evidence in some respects. Uh, you, you gather evidence, and it very well could support your belief. But if you gather evidence, it could also disintegrate your belief. And that can get very, very tricky. It's when we begin to cherry pick, pick and choose, and inevitably being finite, we have no choice because we don't see the whole. I get that. I get that. I understand. However, to deliberately choose only materials which support your point of view and either cheat with the other materials or never even mention them, especially when they're pretty widespread. They're well-known across this globe. Then you have to start wondering why that particular way of, of bolstering your belief works with some people when, quite frankly, that would be cheating from my point of view. It's the same thing with this DNA and the evolution. But I want to show some very interesting potential possible Mormon interpretations of the scriptures that don't jive with the official history of interpretation of the scripture in the church. Now, for them to turn around and say, yeah, well, that's, that's interesting, but we have the final word. Why? Based upon an office or a calling? No, that's authoritarianism. I'm not trying to be scientistic either, because using and misusing the authoritarianism in science also doesn't get us anywhere real. And that's what we're all after. What is, what 
is. I have very good evidence that sunflowers are beautiful yellow flowers, and I'm showing it to you right here with this fantastic array of sunflowers behind me and to my side, and they go all the way up here. They're beautiful. Sunflowers never are bright pink or jet black and healthy. This is their nature, so to speak. The evidence of their shape coming up on a stalk and then the head falling over at a 90 degree perpendicular and having the seeds in the center. This is the nature of a sunflower. What is in a sunflower is the sunflower. We don't call these roses for very good reason. There's no evidence that they are roses. It wouldn't matter if you say, well, you're doubting, you, you don't have enough faith, you need to listen to the Holy Spirit to testify to you of the truth of what is concerning a sunflower. All of that would be superfluous noise. I propose it's the exact same principle with this DNA and evolution concept. So now let's take a look at a scholarly Mormon approach to some scriptures and perhaps a way to accommodate the science and the religion, although there's some quirkiness, what I want to notice for your sake too, is that this is different than the official uh, church interpretations, but that doesn't make it false. And for the church to then come around and insinuate well, you're just simply using the philosophy of man mingled with scripture, when in point of fact, that is all the Mormon leaders are doing also. They are taking a philosophy of man of having a literal historical understanding of the written text. That's a philosophy. Like I said, the Jews have four different levels, four different characteristics of translating the scriptures and understanding the scriptures. The literal is one of them, but it's not their primary mode. For Mormons, it is. So there's going to be bound differences. And it's those differences that I find very instructive. Terrell Givens' excellent text Wrestling with the Angel. It's hard to believe this is published by Oxford University Press. It's hard to believe it's already seven years old. Time passes fast. On page 114 or 214 following, I want to read his approach. His is a generalized overview. And I want to read his approach and show you how there are different and varying ways to interpret the accommodationist concept of evolution, DNA, and uh, Mormon doctrine, if you will. Mormon doctrine is so difficult to classify and follow because it changes so often. And yet they say there is a core. Well, in Brigham Young's day, the core was the practice, not just the belief in, but the doing of polygamy. Where is it now? That's one, for instance. So let's see what Terrell Gibbons says concerning this incredibly interesting theme on evolution and Mormonism. Mormons likewise maintain that the difference between the human and the animal is not incremental, but fundamental and is centered in an eternal human soul. Animals have their own as well, according to Joseph Smith. That's an interesting concept, isn't it? Joseph Smith actually grasped this interconnectedness between humanity and the rest of life on earth, unlike the later apostle Boyd K. I don't have a clue, Packer. Yeah. I'll stick with Joseph Smith. Well, he's a dead prophet. I don't give a damn if he's dead or alive. I think he had a better view. The difference is that for Mormons, the human soul has its own prehistory. And this is true of other ancient views also, just so you're aware of that. Mormons are not unique in that. 
and its own acquired attributes and character along with its own moral agency. And the body, as we've seen, is made in the literal likeness and similitude of that eternal spirit. That's somewhat unique, but there are some precedents in ancient history too, and of an anthropomorphic God, and that's problematic, truly. So it cannot be the case as it is for uh, the Catholic biologist Kenneth Miller that the human body acquired its present form by happenstance. Well, so far as we're aware, here again, this is one of the sticking issues between the Mormon faith and their doctrine and understanding based on a Joseph Smith teaching and the actual evidence, right? Or that God waited until any kind of creature evolved with whom he could then begin to have a special relationship. That is Ken Miller's stance. Finding Darwin's God. If you haven't read that, you're cheating yourself. It's a good book. So can Mormonism's view of a foreordained and pre-designed bodily tabernacle be, be reconciled with Darwin? The question is important, but must be seen in the larger context of Mormonism and science. Now, I, I recognize that Givens is one of these neo-Mormon, uh, neo-apologetic types. There are things he writes that I just can't agree with. There's other things that I find greatly intriguing. This is one of those areas here where I find his analysis to be really fun to give us a better background. So on page 215, here is how Givens puts it. The same year that Joseph Smith incorporated a new church in upstate New York, John Murray, the friend and publisher of leading British radicals and revolutionaries like Lord Byron, he published a work that would shake the very foundations of organized religion. That was the year the first volume of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology came off the press as well. This is, this is the historic background that's so interesting. It created major tremors that would anticipate and amplify the turbulent upheaval soon to follow in the wake of Darwin's theory of natural selection as the force that drives evolution. Lyle's contribution to orthodoxy's demise has been his compelling geological evidence for an antiquity of the earth that far exceeded the mere six millennia suggested by Genesis. Genesis uh, does not suggest that. That's a various, that is a potential interpretation. There's other views, of course. The overwhelming evidence for an earth age, which is measured in millions of years, meant literal readings of the Bible were no longer tenable. I like how he acknowledges the back and forth. To disturb the religious faith, he did more than any other scientist. And, hey neighbor, how you doing? Four-wheelers coming through. He did more than any other scientist, writes one scholar, to disturb the religious faith of the 1830s and the century that followed. So this is the beginning of the context for Joseph Smith's life. This is really interesting, Charles Lyell geology, uh, which geologists to this day definitely are using. The reason I put this cliff behind me, this wonderful, now this particular cliff is volcanic ash layered through the millennia, and it's been exposed to the weather. And so I wanted to put this in my background to show you. And the very top part up here is the gigantic lava rocks that were spewed out when this place was volcanic. This ash layer is all over this valley. A hundred miles that way, 70 miles to my north, etc. This ash layer has been exposed through the years. As children, now it's been acquired as private property. As children, we used to come out here and shoot our guns <laughs> right here at this spot. So this geology principle, based on the evidence of the layering of, you notice the different colorations, the striations, even in this particular clip, you can see the colorations. 
Well, you can see all the pock marks from us idiots shooting it too. But and then up above is the actual lava rock itself, and you can see the various different types of layers intermingled with not only the volcanic ash but the dirt from the winds through the centuries. This is a wonderful example of showing the acquisition of age and evolving earth surface. This is still in use today. This destroys the young earth theory. And that was uh, Bishop Usher's chronology, six days, 6,000 years, etc. cetera. Uh, you're just, you're remaining willfully ignorant if you accept that view. And I do have people who every now and then do get a hold of me who watch my videos who say, well, I've got a family member who says that, or I've got a family member who says this about evolution, etc. It isn't just the biological. This is the, uh, this is the multiple discipline approach that has occurred through scientific analysis. It is the geological as well as the biological. It is the oceanographic as well as the atmospheric, including the astronomical approach and understanding as all of these disciplines have come to the fore, the one thing they have done more than anything else, and of course this doesn't bother the Jews, but the one thing it does do is it really does disturb a literal reading of the ancient record when it comes to theological understanding of deity and the relationship of a deity to the creation and the time lengths. We now know geological time goes very, very, very deep, just exactly like cosmological time goes very, very, very deep. The James Webb Telescope has been showing us just how deep it goes. Interestingly enough, there are several astronomers now who are saying the James Webb Telescope itself is challenging the Big Bang Theory. So we've got some wonderful new interesting interpretations coming up. So. Pratt even noted that the Father and the Son declared in his key to the science of theology, well, they were a part of the eternal and physical universe, and therefore they were subject to the laws that governs of necessity now, even the most refined order of physical existence. Because all physical element, however, embodied quickened, or as he called it, refined, is subject to the general laws necessary to all of existence. This is part of P. Pratt's stance. Young confirmed this conflation. Notice what we have here is a, not a contest, not a, the devil is tempting you to doubt the faith noise that we hear today in Mormonism. But notice this, Young confirmed this conflation of earthly and heavenly law with a very startling image. When the elements melt with fervent heat, the Lord Almighty will send forth his angels who were well instructed in chemistry, and they will separate the elements and make new combinations from those elements. Richard Bushman suggests in the same spirit that the end point of engineering knowledge may be divine knowledge. Mormon theology permits us to think of God and humans as collaborators, partners in the creation, as it were, in bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. Engineers may be preparing for the way for humans to act more like gods in managing the world. See, in this speculation, Mormons ironically find an unlikely and surely an unwilling ally in the arch-atheist Richard Dawkins. Now, this is remarkable, isn't it? You know, the Mormon apologists love to stamp their hate on the atheists, right? Yeah. In his controversial critique of religion, Richard Dawkins wrote, Any creative intelligence of sufficient complexity to design anything comes into existence only at the end product of an extended process of gradual evolution. Elaborating this point, he also noted, 
You have to have a gradual, slow, incremental process to explain an eye or a brain. And by the very same token, God would have had to have the same kind of explanation. God indeed can't just have happened. If there are gods in the universe, they must be the end product of slow incremental processes. If there are beings in the universe that we would treat as gods, that we would worship as gods, then they must have come about by an incremental process gradually. Now that's the Richard Dawkins stance. But you'll notice that this isn't so at odds <laughs> with the early Mormon brethren's ideas. That's kind of interesting to notice. So consistent with scientific understanding of the eternity of matter that had been suggested as early as the 18th century by Lavoisier's principle of mass conservation, Joseph Smith had already rejected the Earth's ex nihilo creation, and he contested for the biblical version of its six-day organization as well. The Book of Abraham, produced by Joseph Smith in 1835 through 42, substituted indeterminate times for 24-hour days. And as for antiquity of the results, Joseph's close associate, William W. Phelps, recognized that Smith's teachings in this regard conformed to, rather than conflicted, with the new science of geology. Now this is worth understanding. Oh, here comes my neighbor. Hey neighbor. Thank you for driving slow so you don't kick up the dust. Good people around here, man. So William Phelps wrote to William Smith. He noted that Joseph had learned from his work on the papyri that eternity agreeing to the records found in the catacombs of Egypt has been going on in this system, not this world, this system, almost 2,555 millions of years. And to know at the same time that deists, geologists, and others are trying to prove that matter must have existed hundreds of thousands of years. It almost tempts the flesh to fly to God or muster faith like Enoch to be translated. <laughs> there isn't the antagonistic uh, fighting against science that we've had in our intellectual dumbing down in Mormonism since I was a kid. And it began, it's been happening throughout my lifetime. Now, hopefully there's, I mean, there's glimmers of hope now that that is beginning to change once the old dodos are dying off, you know, the Boyd K. Packers, the Marky Petersons and those guys. Uh, we need to, we need to just hang on there because perhaps maybe they can wake up to reality a little bit more. In the meantime, the rest of us have moved on. I, I, I have no reason to maintain faith in the brethren when they are so blatantly, stupidly anti-intellectual and anti-science. Unfortunately, they still influence tens of millions of people. And, and I know there's some of you who have had family members or friends or uncles or even bishops or state presidents who have discussed this with you as you've discussed it. And they say, oh no, follow the brethren. Well, I say, oh hell no, I'm not going to follow anything or anybody but the evidence. That's what justifies. This is the Bayesian theorem approach. It really is. So, fun stuff. Gibbons continues in his book, Darwin's More Famous Origin of Species, appeared in 1859, but precipitated no immediate crisis in religious circles. The 1860 debate between Thomas Huxley, Darwin's bulldog, and the Anglican Bishop Samuel Wilberforce in England, this precedes the prominent Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925 featuring Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan in America. This typified the studied staging rather than the natural unfolding of confrontation and conflict between science and religion. Because initially, most Christians were able to accommodate both science and religion by embracing a kind of a theistic evolution. And 
Books written early on in the Darwinian controversy with titles like The History of the Conflict Between Science and Religion in 1875, The History for the Warfare of Science and Theology in 1896, this reaffirmed and yet exacerbated an invented rather than in inevitable mutual hostility. At this very time, Mormons were insisting upon the seamless marriage between science and religion. Party Pratt thought the intellectual strength of Mormonism was its unwillingness to claim special exemption from the laws of the scientific world. Wow, what a come down compared to what we have today, right? Gibbons continues, as for the particular manner of human creation itself, Smith said nothing. <laughs> Doggone it. Mormonism has no official position on the biblical account of human creation, other than the vague assertion that scriptures is the word of God. Parley Pratt, in his study, Repudiation of Biblical Spiritualizers, who read the second coming in a figurative sense, had set the church on its long trajectory of literalist inclined exegesis. So we know Parley Pratt is one of the culprits for the literalism, right? His influence was especially pronounced in an early church article that attempted to establish some definite rule for interpretation. So here we go. See, everybody does this with the Bible, right? <laughs> Christians and Jews. Citing Pratt's affluence, the author, probably editor Benjamin Winchester, wrote that the idea of spiritualizing the writings in the prophets and the apostles so that none but the learned can understand them is certainly repugnant to the word of God. A literal reading, especially as regards prophecies of the millennium, was the proper and necessary rule. Now, with the current modern understanding of how prophecy is interpreted and uh, understood, that gets exceedingly problematic. Everybody gets to interpret anything they see happening in the world as a fulfillment of the prophecy, and yet nothing ever moves forward. That's the main problem here. And, and it's a big problem without question. So, However, Brigham Young drew the line at Hey, neighbor. Brigham Young, however, drew the line at reading the human creation story in that way. And notice how impatient he is here. Now, this is kind of instructive with Brigham Young. I do not believe that portion of the Bible as the Christian world do. I never did and I never want to. What is the reason I do not? Now, here is his reason. And again, how does reason come about? How can we have a reason for belief or for disbelief, for doubt? without worrying about the silly satanic concept, it's because it's based on evidence. Evidence is what gives us the reason. This is how it works. So here's Brigham Young's reason for not believing the Bible in such a childishly literal way. Because I've come to understand and banished from my mind all the baby stories my mother taught me when I was a child. Now, again, notice, however, what is he critiquing except yet another, uh, in this instance, a parental interpretation of the Scripture, which, of course, they're going to dumb down and baby it out. But a mythological interpretation is not a baby story. It is actually a much broader context than a literalist. Now, the interesting thing is, in the Mormon faith, and I suspect largely in Christianity, and it could be in Judaism, I honestly think Judaism is more uh, mystically, uh, mythologically oriented than Mormonism and Christianity is, right? Uh, and I know that can be argued. Maybe I'll do some videos on that, too, because that's fun stuff. This... Uh, this dichotomy between literal and spiritual is how the Mormon, again, interprets this issue. I don't interpret it that way. I, I interpret it literal, mythological. 
and it's not just spiritual. It, the, the Mormons see this as a spiritualizing way of the truth. Mythologically, it is incorporating the more full meaning of the truth rather than, oh, so-and-so lived then and did this. That doesn't do anything for you. What does that mean? Who knows? You know, the backyard professor climbed up this hill to give you a wonderful view in his videos. So what? What's the meaning of that? What did I do while I was here? It doesn't, you see how I, you see how that works? So his reading, however, did not exactly move in the direction of more palatable allegory. Mankind are here, he said, because they are the offspring of parents who were first brought here from another planet. <laughs> now, here comes Brigham Young bringing in the cosmology, which just scared the living hell out of the Mormons, and it still does. They hate this. <laughs> Fascinating. Now, he's the prophet, you know. <laughs> oh, Young's opinion. Young's opinion. Notice how Given says, whenever there's something uncomfortably that said from a previous prophet, it's always either opinion or, or just guesswork. It's not inspiration or prophetic apparatus. But Brigham Young said so. He said he was inspired to produce the Adam God theory. He said a lot of his sermons were inspiration and therefore to be taken as scripture, and yet they never found their way into the Doctrine and Covenants or a new collection of scripture or whatever, did they? No, not at all. Because some of his ideas are so uh, different than today's view in Mormonism that they would rather throw them out. But is that valid? In that case, we have to ask, when is Scripture Scripture? Only when Joseph Smith spoke? Because Joseph Smith has some pretty wild, hairy doctrines, just like Brigham Young did, and yet Mormonism embraces those. So, so this, is the, uh, this is part of the frustration, but it, at the same time, it's part of the excitement. It's part of the, the serious interest in studying Mormonism as such. Now, what really bumps this up into high interest is that Young's opinion faded from the Mormon understanding with the rest of his Adam God speculations, though it was a generation later with B.H. Roberts, none other, who cited Lord Kelvin's theory of extraterrestrial origins of Earth life as compatible with Young's view that Adam and Eve were translated, being brought here from another sphere, <laughs> and what B.H. Roberts' idea did was it gave, it preserved more or less, the scientific validity of evolution while exempting the human family. So this was Roberts' way out of the, the argument between evolution and humanity. Roberts found a way to circumvent that in his particular apologetic. And at the same time, B.H. Roberts made Adam head of a dispensation rather than of the human race, very interesting here, thereby allowing for pre-Adamites. And yet at the same time, Adam was the first man in that particular sense. So we're seeing him, we're seeing him beget more and more nuance, but you notice one thing interesting here. It is always the interpretation of the scripture, which is uh, be being accommodated, I'll say, shifting in emphasis or flavor uh, rather than the science. The science has the evidence which the former scriptural interpretation did not justify. Therefore, we adjust the former interpretation of the scripture because even though it was claimed to be inspired, it's wrong because it hasn't done, it does not have the evidence. And therefore, the question unanswered is, who is to say that the scripture in the first place is not just someone's opinion? and that you're resting all of your opinions on someone else's opinion rather than vital fundamental truth of what is. That's a very interesting issue. This brings in the argument, the war, so to speak, between science and religion, uh, the, debunk the debunking of the Judeo-Christian scriptures, etc. 
The Mormons don't touch that at this particular instance, although it has come to the fore now. So in response to Darwin's theory of human evolution now, Young himself maintained a careful distance. Coincidentally, it was just a month after Origins was published that Young sounded a note that the naturalist would have applauded. Here's what Brigham Young taught. He observed that naturalists have divided the kingdom into parts. Well, this is not so, he argued, as the human species are linked to the animal. Now, this is quite remarkable because Boyd K. Packer was on record as saying that I hate this idea that we are just animals. Don't let that false, phony philosophy of man mingled with scripture quell you. Don't let it persuade you because we are more than animals. We are not animals. We don't act like beasts. I mean, it just offended his moral sense of superiority to the point to where it was cacklingly humorous to listen to that idiot pontificate on this subject. <laughs> you know, Brigham Young taught exactly what evolution teaches. And now this is part of the DNA issue. Now, evolution, yes, but now the, uh, the extra arm, the extra branch of evolution, of the evolutionary bush, as Stephen Jay Gould has called it, rather than Darwin's tree, it's more of a bush with no actual real direction. Now we have the influence, the relatedness, the interconnectedness with all of living life, including the plants, the very trees behind me in this video. We all have a genetic relationship to them. We are related to all life on this planet, like I told in the part one. Uh, Boyd K. Packer was just a dunderhead. Brigham Young got it right. And yet they've thrown him under the bus too. Isn't that astonishing, you know? Well, yeah, we're prophets and we have the inspired truth, but the former prophets didn't. Well, that's what they've been saying about the former philosophers, the former scientists, the former religions. I mean, nobody else except the inspired Mormons have the truth, and yet they are so off base with what the truth really is that nobody can carry on and believe them. And yet they don't see that. Isn't that amazing? That's just amazing. He never mentioned Darwin or his theory by name, however, Brigham Young, that is. But more than a decade later, he could not restrain, restrain a touch of a schadenfreude at the discomfiture of the fundamentalists in the face of scientific developments generally. I am not astonished, Brigham Young said, that infidelity prevails to a great extent among the inhabitants of the earth. He said this in 1871. For the religious teachers of the people advance many ideas and notions for truth, which are in opposite to and contradict facts demonstrated by science and which are generally understood. And now today, I, the backyard professor, would say inclusive of modern Mormonism as well. From the leadership stance, one, they won't even enter the controversy anymore. They are so outclassed with the evidence. Now, the Mormon scholars, such as Terrell Gibbons and others, can give a historic background and all without getting in trouble with the brethren. But you notice he's just giving a historical context. Although it's a great context, it's fun to read and grasp a yet larger context for all of this for the Mormons. This is the stuff that arms you to prepare with your relatives when they take the fundamentalist Joseph Fielding Smith approach, right? So such liberal sentiments, however, did not extend to an embrace of Darwin. So most Mormon leaders kept their silence. Now Orson Pratt, though, and some others were dismissive. The LDS Church did not declare authoritatively on the subject until 1909. And then with the statement of calculated ambiguity and cautioned against but did not repudiate the theory, which is so typical of Mormons today. And they continue to use that rather old, worthless almost, 1909 statement. <laughs> Evolution, science, the DNA studies especially with the molecular and the... Uh, with the double helix information, uh, where the uh, 
the four nucleotides are on the inside of the double swirl of the DNA. And that kind of information is shocking to the science community because we don't know where it came from. They are describing the shape of the double helix and all that, but how is it that literal information is deposited in all life? That gets uh, Stephen C. Meyer has some interesting information on that. The return of the God hypothesis, etc. Uh, quite the scientist, no kidding. Uh, educated, I believe, at Oxford, if I remember right. But yeah, he's got some great videos that you could watch. So this theme of the the uh, conflict continues. I will. I have some other LDS scholars that I would really, really like to elaborate on because of the way that uh, Stephen L. Peck, a good biologist at BYU, who is also fundamentally on the side of evolution, and so we can begin to see how he further. Uh, he accommodates, he interprets, and he changes, or at least he adds yet another uh, interpretation of the Scripture. But you notice it's always the Scripture and the interpretation of the Scripture that is being changed. The science is still intact. The accommodation is on the side of the religious, not the scientific. That's worth noting. So, anyway, thanks for watching my backyard professor videos. Uh, I love doing these. I hope you enjoy them. Remember, be good, do well, have fun. Thanks again. Be good neighbors, be good friends, stay happy, and I will see you in the next backyard professor videos.